Big Ten Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me your ears. And if you're watching this on video, appreciate your eyeballs. Today, I have Joe McNeil from InBlue2. Please help me welcome Joe to the podcast. Joe, how are we doing this morning? I'm doing wonderful. Great to be here. Wonderful. Hey, I, I realize, are you out of, you're out of Minnesota, right? Yes. Yes, I'm in Twin Cities. Best time of the year right now, fall. Yeah, perfect time of the year. Did I tell you I lived there 10 years, actually? Uh, you did not. That's I exciting. lived there 10 years. Uh, my first, my, my internships were with Honeywell. I, were, I lived in uh, Hopkins, Minnesota. I even learned to say, yeah, for sure, yeah, betcha, yeah, that whole bit, you know. And my wife is actually from Minnesota. She's from the St. Cloud Cold Spring area. Did you know that? No kidding. My wife is uh, from Grand Forks, North Dakota, actually. And, and if you think the Minnesota accents are, are humorous, then you should, hear, you should hear the North Dakota accents. I love it. All right. So, Joe, uh, give the folks on the Sales Influence Podcast a little bit about yourself and your company. Yeah, so so I've been in sales leadership for over ten years. Uh, started my le- sales leadership journey with a company called Proto Labs. Went through an IPO with them. was a was a great experience. Had great mentors there. Uh, from there, I moved to a company called Sight Improve. Joined when they were around eight million in revenue. Fully outbound organization based in Copenhagen. Uh, left there last uh, or this January. Actually, um, we hit hundred million. Got acquired by a PE firm. I thought it was a Time for a, a new journey, new new growth journey, which which I enjoy the most. Uh, joined Influ Two mostly because I believe in, in the people here, but also the product. Um, we do hyper targeted advertising that really connects marketing and sales teams and, and creates actionability for for sellers. Now, what was your background, Joe? You kind of you went over, you just kind of skipped over that, like you know, what was your background before you actually moved into the leadership position? Yes, so I have a a very perfect background for sales, uh, meaning I was, a, I was a landscape architecture major in college. Um, you know, my, my sales journey is actually kind of a funny one. I, uh, I started in sales because it was really the only thing hiring, and I, I, like, I despised it my first year. I think I applied to every job in Minnesota at that point, and lucky for me, I didn't get any of them. Um, you know, I, I started to enjoy it as I started to get better at it. I was selling staffing at that point and, you know, the economy wasn't great. So I think it was a, it was a tough economy to be a seller in, but I think, you know, like many things, it was a blessing in disguise. Uh, I ended up landing with a company with Proto Labs as a seller, enterprise seller there, learned a ton from great leadership there, moved into, into, um, into leadership myself and had a great support system, which I think is important when you, when you start, leadership role had a great team as well so my journey was was an interesting one but uh wouldn't wouldn't trade it for anything in the world before we jump into what you guys do at influ too like what was one what a, a memorable leadership lesson early on in your career that you like to share yeah i think uh my my first leader when i was a sales leader was uh kathy mayerhofer she's she's chief sales officer at zometry right now uh, she sounds tough great. already, by the way. That name uh, just sounds tough. <laughs> uh, no, she, is, she is the nicest woman alive. But uh, she basically gave me the tip that before you ask for anything from your team, offer something to them. So give them value before you ask for anything. And it's a simple tip, but I think uh, us in leadership, sometimes we build this plan and this structure where we ask a lot. 
And I think before you ask anything, being able to offer value for your team is, is a great start. I love the philosophy there, but give me an example of how you applied it. It can be anything. I mean, if, if you know, they have one monitor and they want two monitors and they've never, uh, you know, had gotten approval from the company, something tactical like that, just come in and, and help them. But anything else, you know, whether it's uh, they're, they're struggling, if you can look at their results and present them an idea of, hey, if you optimize in this one area, here's what the impact I think it could have and here's how we're going to do it. I, th- I think that's a great start too. Just offering a different set of eyes on their process and, and you know where they can make the biggest impact. I think as a seller and a leader in sales, the, the hardest thing is what should I do right now? Right, like there's all this stuff I can do. I have half hour, forty five minutes, two hours. What should I do right now? And I think if you can help them answer that question of what will have the biggest impact, uh, I think that, I think people enjoy that. I love that. Perfect. Perfect. On that note, let's let's get into business. Let's get let's go deep here. You know, over the last three to five years, pre and post pandemic, you know, kind of give me your take on the market and you know the ability to connect with clients today. How easy or hard has it become? Yeah, I think you know it's become hard if you don't adapt, if you're too rigid. And I think one thing that the pandemic did was it created a lot more committee-based decisions, a lot more group-based decisions. I think pre-pandemic, there was a lot of segment owners within a business, whether it's demand gen, sales, SDR, you know, inbound, outbound, that were holding budgets and, and they were, you know, there wasn't as much connective rev tech technology. And I think this is this is similar with every department, whether you're in financial tech, whatever. And I think you, you were building your own little siloed stack with your own little budget. I think once once the pandemic hit, you know, the tech had already been there where it was starting to get more connective, but people started to work a bit more together because I think, you know, uh, budgets were tight. People didn't know what was going on. And I think people were uncomfortable making spending decisions on their own and rightfully so just because they didn't, they didn't want to, you know, paint themselves in a corner. So there's a lot of data on it, but like the, the people involved in a buying decision, you know, whether it's enterprise technology or even something, you know, a bit more tactical is becoming bigger and bigger. And it's becoming more diversified um, in terms of who the different stakeholders are with security being a bigger thing with, you know, GDPR and a lot of these privacy, you know, regulations being a bigger thing where you have to look at the holistic impact of any vendor you add at this point. Oh, I agree. I agree. But there's so many questions I have in what you just said, but, but I, w- I want to take a step back because when, it, when you look at Influ2 and what you have to offer, Walk my audience through a, a common scenario. Victor, here's a company that has this problem, right? Here's what they've been struggling with. Here's how we can help. And here are the results when they come out the other side. Yeah, so I think there's like there's three layers of value. One, one primary value on the marketing side, one primary value on the sales side, and then one primary value holistically. Now, we take something that's been around forever, you know, digital advertising, uh, and we're, we're helping marketers simplify the budgeting for it, but also be quite a bit more targeted. You know, IP and cookie-based advertising is getting more complicated, especially since COVID with the distributed workforce, but also with, you know, privacy regulations. So you, you, when you target an account, and accounts don't buy, people buy, you have to water down the messaging because you don't know who's going to see that messaging per se, specifically, right? So we allow you to create an ad for a specific audience, not just persona, but the actual person, 
whether it's a CMO campaign, you assign those specific CMOs to it. Then our technology optimizes where to show that based on their media consumption. And the, the other value is it creates, it, it ties the engagement, uh, the, the you know, impressions, the web visits, as well as the clicks and views directly to that person in the CRM. So I think the challenge with ABM tech, and I'm a big believer in intent tech, I, I, I think it's great for sales teams, but it can be hard to action on because, you know, if you're an enterprise seller and you see Microsoft showing a bunch of engagement and a bunch of intent, but Victor is the guy you need to talk to, or there's seven other people, it's hard to know how to action on that to Victor because you have no idea where he fits in that puzzle. So we solve that problem. And then holistically, being able to tie back into the CRM, we can follow that whole journey to, to show uh, an ROI report on, mar on advertising's influence because we can tie directly back to the person. Man, I just, like I said, man, you just, well, you compact all that because there's a lot in there to unpack, right? So I'm going to back up again, just kind of go through it slowly. I'm a company that's offering a service. Because you mentioned several things. You talk about, you know, the IP slash cookie advertising, how that's becoming more difficult. You mentioned earlier GDPR. You're throwing that in there. ABM marketing, getting the data into the CRM, finding intent slash behavioral or sentiment analysis, whatever you want to call it, on the AI side. Let's back up a little bit and make it simple. I want to simplify this, and then let's kind of tear it apart a little bit. I'm a company that I sell services, right? Consulting services for the, uh, I don't know, IT industry. And so I would come to a company like you. I said, look, I'm trying to get more to drive more traffic using account-based marketing. I'm trying to drive more traffic to my site, and these are the people I am targeting. Fair so far? Fair. In that setup? Fair. Okay. Okay. And so now I come to a company like you, and you say digital advertising, uh, which could mean not only online. Describe, in fact, in fact, describe what your definition of digital advertising is. I have an idea, but I just want to make sure it's all inclusive in what you mean. Yeah, so specifically for us, we deliver ads through Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Google Network, Yahoo Network, and Amazon. So, so they're, they're ads through those channels. Do you help me develop those ads, or do I have to do that? You do that. We obviously have a stable of agency partners that can support that. And we have a lot of best practices and benchmarks based off our successful customers. But, but you do That's that. Because, you know, you, you want to control the message to your audience. All right. I love it. So anyway, I have a problem. I don't have enough customers. I need more eyeballs on my website. I partner with you and maybe with some of your agency on developing some content to drive the traffic. You guys say, okay, here's how it's going to work. Here are the keywords we're targeting. Here's your ICPs, your ideal client profiles, your target personas, so forth and so on. Fair so far? Fair. Pull the data in. Now, I get some data from you, let's say, at the end of the month. Walk me from there. Let's say you've monitored the data for me. And remember, I'm your client. What are you going to show me at the end of the month? Because I think people need to understand the real value of what you offer. Yeah, so we dig a lot deeper than, you know, a, a lot of ABM campaigns, they measure effectiveness through web traffic, through things like this. And the reason they do that is because they can't measure directly to the opportunity level, right? So when we talk to our, our, our prospects and customers, you know, we're supporting efficiency in their funnel, right? Especially right now, most companies are doing outbound. And, and if your SDRs and sellers are, are calling on a cold audience, you know, we help warm that audience up, right? So we show, we'll show conversions of prospects to pipeline, on the audience that we advertised to versus ones we didn't. So we can show the difference in conversion rate. Then we can follow that through and we can show sales velocity for the opportunities that we're supporting multi-threading through our advertisements versus the ones they aren't. And then we can ultimately follow that to revenue.
Gotcha. And so, so when you're talking to a company, because I know you do more than just web traffic, right? Because you're really looking at what's actually happening as they're visiting the web page. Is that a fair thing? For example, if they're looking at videos or downloading white papers based on the things you've set up, is that a fair statement? Yeah, usually we're looking at that. That's sometimes it's a KPI for what they're looking at, but usually it's you know, did they click on the ad? How much time did they spend on the ad? How many impressions did we deliver them? And did they convert to pipeline? So I would say web traffic's like uh, it's a data point, but it's definitely not the success criteria. Gotcha. What have you noticed on some of the data? You know, when people are coming on there and they're looking at an ad, watching an ad, are there some correlated, you know, numbers that you found? Like, for example, Victor, they do this on the ad. We typically see this and that converts into the pipeline. Yeah. So, so even if the prospect hasn't clicked on an ad or gone to the website, we see like a, a two to 4% increase in conversions to pipeline for ones that we just serve impressions to. And then, you know, for those that went to the website or actually engaged with an ad, there's like a eight to 10 to 12% increase in conversion to pipeline. And then we do, we do see sales velocity increases uh, on the opportunities that we're advertising to as well. Yeah, that's got to be, you, you got you to have some fascinating data, I'm sure, as far as you know, sure. what correlates. And so I'm not going to ask you for the secret sauce and all that good stuff. So anyway, so you're driving the traffic. Uh, and then how do you, what, what's the next step? Uh, so they convert into the pipeline. Again, the company will reach out with their SDRs. At that point, does your responsibility end? No, I would say, that, you know, when I talk about efficiency throughout the funnel, there's, there's three layers. There's top of funnel, and that's not just new logo, that's customer too. Like historically, advertising hasn't been a good channel, uh, channel to drive pipeline with customers because it's hard to deliver the right messaging to the right customers, right? You, if you have a user base that you want to look at, you know, upsell, then you can deliver that type of messaging. And if you have a, a team or a geography that isn't using and you want to look to cross-sell expand, you can deliver that messaging. And it's been challenging for advertising to do that effectively to customers. So we can drive, drive you know, customer success. You know, we do have customers that advertise to their current customers ahead of renewals just to start getting in front of the buying committee. So there's a lot of different ways to do it, you know, event support, webinar support, things like that. But typically it's, you know, top of funnel pipeline generating. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about the amount of people involved in a buying decision. Right now, you know, right now, multi-threading opportunities and getting in front of all these people is very dependent on the AE and, and marketing has a tough time supporting those. So really, you know, if you think of all the stakeholders in a deal, a lot of them have different success criteria for that deal. They have different ideas of the value they're gonna get from that deal. And being able to deliver the right messaging to the right persona and really stay in front of those, that buying group throughout the buying decision, even if it's on an RFP where you can't directly connect with them, you can still advertise to them, right? You can support that as well. Man, let, let, let's really dig in there because I, I, I just did this thing called the Outbound Conference, right? Uh, big sales conference. And I think it's interesting how one of the topics that kept coming up is the, the size of the actual buying committees, how they keep expanding, right? Now they include lawyers and people on the data side, especially with GDPR, right? The new rules uh, and privacy rules. And so how do you go about it? I mean, what are some of the... I guess what's some, what are some insights you can give on when you're dealing with multiple buyers, each have multiple motivations, each have their own private agenda of why they want to do what they want to do. How, what have you been seeing from the seller side, the people you're working with, on how they're dealing with the multi-threading that's going on there? Yeah, I think it's challenging because a lot of those individuals influencing opportunity, they don't like to or don't really get involved in directly connecting with a salesperson Right. In general. So they do a lot of offline research. They look at your website. They look at your socials. They look at your, 
you know, reviews, your testimonials, your case studies, and they look at all this other stuff, even your, your documentation and the paperwork that the, the, the AE sends over. So it's tough for you to control the message to them. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, being able to present information to them in a way where they'll, they'll, it'll get in front of their eyeballs and you can actually prove that it's getting in front of their eyeballs is important. Right. And so how do you, such, this is such, it's a tough topic, isn't it? Because it's like, how do you get, as you pointed out, in front of all these people, they're doing their own research. Right? I think uh, Google had that one, I don't know if you remember that ZMOT study they called, Zero Moment of Truth study, where they said on average people look at 10 sources of information before they reach out to a vendor. So they're going to educate themselves. And so, you know, as you walk me through the process, I've never done this, Joe, so I, I, I want you to educate me as well. And that is, I figured out that I'm going after that account. That account has, let's say, 10 influencers that I need to target, right? How do I begin putting a campaign for that together? How does that work with Influ2, your company? Yeah, so you build the campaigns based on the audience that you want to see it. So if you have a, you know, you have persona messaging and you have information for security folks, right? You build that campaign and you add the specific security folks that you want to that campaign, so it's not just a persona thing. It's like, all right, if I have these 10 opportunities, these are the 10 specific security folks for those opportunities. I'm going to add those people to this campaign. And those people are who we're going to pay to advertise to and only those people, nobody else. So you don't, you, it's very efficient from that uh, situation. I think, you know, you see it in the market in general. Like in the past, all of this information was gated because you need someone to fill a form to get information. And that's just not a great, buyer experience because people don't, they typically don't fill out that information because they know exactly what's going to happen. So in general, making this information available to the buyer the easiest way possible so that they can, so they consume the information you want them to consume instead of having to go out and find all this alternative information that isn't gated, that maybe isn't accurate, or you don't necessarily, it's not something you control the messaging around. Oh, I agree. I'm so with you. I think, you know, like even, you know, the whole give me your email is already, as you say, a gate that most people just say, you know what, screw it. I can, I'll go look for somewhere else for the information. So I, I think you're spot on. Uh, and I love the fact that it's almost like a sniper attack for a lot of companies. If a company's working with your company, I mean, how long does it take to implement something like this, put together a plan? I'm asking you a tough question because it really depends on the number of users and the types yeah. of, I guess, targeted campaign. Give, give me a scope and idea of how this would work if I wanted to work with you. Yeah, it's usually two to three weeks. It's really dependent oh, wow. on. It's dependent on two primary factors. Well, let's say three. It's it's do you have the right ad content to do this right, or like you know now that you can advertise to specific people and personas, that demands sort of a higher level of creative needs to actually build those ads right. Do you have the people you want to advertise to in the database? And then, you know, how complicated is it, is your database? You know, if it's Salesforce, if it's HubSpot, if it's Marketo, if it's Pardot, if it's, you know, most of these, it's pretty simple. A few clicks and we can integrate. Now, security-wise and things like that, you know, they might have to jump through some hoops of internal procurement. But generally, we're up, we're up and running in two to three weeks. You know, then the ads, you know, take, let's say, two weeks to really get rolling. And then, you know, this is, this is when we talk about ROI. If someone says, like, hey, I want to do a trial takes a little while, right? Because, you know, you get your audience, you get your creative built. Let's say that takes three weeks. The ads get rolling for a couple weeks. You get some engagement. 
you add those people to sequences, you know, good outbound sequences, like 28 business days long. Right. And, and then, you, you know, so you get rolling that way. It takes a little bit to get the pipeline going, but to get started, it's pretty quick. And this is a tough question. I don't know if you want to answer this question. You could say pass and not answer it. But if I, again, I'm a company, I'm putting myself in a company perspective, you know, work, wanting to work with Influ2. And that is how, what should I budget for a campaign? You know, what's your average? And I know this, that's what I'm saying. It's a tough question because there's a range, I'm sure. Yeah. But give me some numbers here so I can kind of solidify this in my head. Yeah, it, it's it's a hard question to answer. Mm, it is. It is. Just I, I because it really <laughs> well, no, it just really depends on their unit economics, right? It reminds on it, it ends up. What's your average deal size? You know, what? How many targets do you have? How much are you spending on advertising right now? You know, how many SDRs do you have? What's your upbound team look like? So, I think it's it's we do a lot of discussions around let's let's get a sizable enough audience where we can get some data. But let's not try to eat the elephant. Let's look for the low-hanging fruit segment where we can make an impact because when we make an impact, it's going to be easy to expand the program. If we can show you that, you know, $1 in investment yields, you know, 4 to $5 in influence, like that becomes easy to expand from there for everybody involved. So it, it, it's, it's very dependent on their unit economics, really. I'm going to push you even harder on this one, Joe. You're not going to like me for this. I'll still push you, okay? <laughs> the, so what is the – let me ask you this. What is the minimum amount? Somebody should commit to at least, you know, from a budgetary standpoint. I said, look, this would be a good sizable bot. It can go up from here, but this is the least I would at least commit to to get some interesting results to kind of see if this is going to work or not. Yeah, I think, you know, usually we say about a thousand person audience, and the way mm -hmm. we work is it's it's audience per month, right? Mm -hmm. So it's you're, you're advertising to about a thousand people a month, and you know you're looking at. Three to five thousand dollars a month from that standpoint. Okay, um, that's, that's but, good entry but level. But it's really relative to you know how much are you investing in your BDRs or SDRs? How much are you investing in in, in the other channels and advertising in general? So it's really dependent on your holistic commercial strategy. Really, I totally agree with that. Like I said, I I, I guess for people listening to this, I said okay, you know, before they reach out to a company like yours, I said be ready to commit that just to get started. Then it goes up from yeah. there. But again, if the results are there, your infrastructure is in place, then yeah. it becomes the, kind of a no-brainer. The unique thing about us is when I when I reference that three to five thousand dollars a month, that's inclusive of media spend. So so you know our pricing, it's all just matched contacts, including media spend. So so all of its value added spend. There's no platform fee, implementation fee, anything like that. No hidden costs. I love that. You mentioned earlier before we got started on the podcast that the when I asked you about change of the market, you said we've grown from grow and scale to finding efficiencies. Walk me through what's happening in the market. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. People are, are pivoting on the fly, right? People are pipeline starved. You know, if you look at last year, last year was kind of a throw mud at the wall and see what sticks marketing growth standpoint, right? And I think generating pipeline wasn't, I don't want to say hard, but it was maybe the easiest market ever to generate pipeline in. So, so companies hit these pipeline numbers last year and they based this year's goals off of last year's numbers and they're in a tough spot right now. So, so I think, you know, Pavilion had a, a, a study recently and I think it's something like 80% of companies are behind their pipeline goals, right? So, so companies are scratching and clawing for any way to do it. And I think you see it with a, with a, a lot of the product led growth companies that last year, you know, the machine was generating enough pipeline and now it's not. And they've never really had to do anything besides the PLG machine to grow pipeline. So they're 
trying outbound. These other companies are not getting as much inbound as they thought, so they're trying to close the gap with outbound. And the challenge is the outbound team is smaller and they're not being supported properly. And what you see is, and this is this is to no fault of SDR leadership, but when you're behind in pipeline, the most common strategy to catch up in pipeline with the outbound team is more volume. So, so more volume yields less quality, usually, and, and personalization. And, I, you know, SalesLoft had data recently that volume of outreach has never been higher from an outbound standpoint, and conversion rate has never been lower into pipeline. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. And in that outbound, they include a lot of emails and video being sent, right? Yeah. Because uh, I found it interesting. Again, we did the outbound conference, and it's always interesting when we talk outbound. Everybody, you know, remember when the phone was proclaimed dead yeah. years ago? <laughs> which I would argue against that it's not dead. So everybody now has, by the way, based on the companies I've talked to, everybody's having a lumpy pipeline right now. You know, it's very inconsistent, not as many leads coming in. Um, and so I, I agree with you what's happening in the market. So, so what are companies trying to do? I mean, you just pointed out something scary. You can go for volume, but your quality goes down. And then you can try outbound, but again, people are not responding. So what's the solution here, Joe? Give us some this guidance here. So the, the companies that are getting exposed right now are the companies that have a very siloed demand gen or pipeline generating channels, right? You have your inbound channel that, you know, we invest in them and we attribute anything that anybody that raises their hand to them. Then we have our outbound channel and they have to, they basically have to do it themselves through mm -hmm. outreach sales law or whatever. And then we have our, our partner channel. You'll have these very siloed ones. The companies that are figuring it out right now and that are winning are creating a more cohesive revenue team, right? And, and it's cool to see in the market, you see a lot more revenue job titles, you know, revenue operations instead of marketing operations or sales operations. You see right. revenue officers, you see, you see a lot more, you know, instead of viewing sales as a sales initiative, you know, sales and revenue is a company initiative and start looking at your, how you're generating pipeline as a commercial initiative, right? And how does the marketing team support the SDR team? How do they warm up the audience? And at the end of the day, like who cares if someone raised their hand or signed up for a webinar or whatever, as long as they end up in the pipeline and you hit your pipeline goals. So creating more company-based pipeline goals as an organization where everyone's optimizing in the same direction and marketing and sales and customer success and partners, we all have the same definition of what it means to win. Because, you know, if you get into a QBR or something, and we're, they're like, hey, we're, we're at 50% to pipeline and we're behind in revenue and, you know, marketing raises their hand and they're like, well, I hit my goals. Like, that's not healthy. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and you get groups optimizing in different directions. So at the end of the day, if, if you can get them all assigned to the same problem and all working towards the same solution, that's a huge step forward. What do you see with companies? I mean, you're, you're bringing up an interesting point because the... You're talking about the evolution, I, and you probably see this as well. I mean, you, I think you're in the ideal situation because I think the, the role of the VP of sales or VP of marketing or whatever it may be are going to be like subsumed over this larger category. I don't know if it'll be a CRO row, a, a, a rev dev row, whatever it may be. But how do companies begin to consolidate? Because everybody wants to stay siloed, right? So it's, it's habitual. What are you seeing as far as companies who try to move together? What are some great ideas, strategies, tactic, advice you can provide for companies to really create, as you say, that holistic approach to trying to generate revenue. Yeah. I mean, look at the companies that are doing it best. You know, if you look at one of the better 
commercial SaaS companies, you know, Gong is a great example, right? You look at their, their market cap compared to Chorus's and Chorus was there first, right? I mean, I, I don't know where they're at now, but a couple of years ago, they were still 65% outbound. But the difference is every outbound lead that came in was subscribed to their blog, read their content religiously, had a favorable view of their brand. They put their SDRs in a great position to win, you know, and, and because marketing was focused on engagement with their core audience, not hand raises, not MQLs, not vanity metrics, right? They, they were focused on how do we engage in the best possible way with our core audience, VPs of sales, sales leaders, revenue leaders, right? They pivoted their message a lot over the last, you know, five to ten, six years, but really like, that, that, that's not the impact. The impact is their mission to engage with their audience. And I think that's important. And the, the other thing is I think right now there's too many vendors, too many buyers, like too many vendors pitching a, a silver bullet, too many buyers looking for a silver bullet, too many consultants, you know, giving hot takes about a silver bullet, right? And there's just no silver bullet in your go-to-market. It's, it's very iterative and it's scratching and clawing for every inch. Right. Like if it's, you know, my job as a CRO is to, to scratch and claw for every inch. Nothing's too small. Right. And I think just understanding you're never going to come up with this tool or this strategy or this vendor. That's just like the answer to our scale. It's just a I, lot of work and a lot of iteration. Nice. Re- by the way, that's a nice reference to that movie. Any given Sunday, we've got to claw for that yeah. inch. Remember that you got to claw, yeah. yeah. claw for that inch. But I, you know, I've I've actually interviewed the um, the CEO of Course and Gong, and what I find interesting, and I love your take on it. One of the things that Gong has done well is that it's communicated with. I'm going to say that it's core audience. I mean, they're they're selling up here to the the at the enterprise level, but they really connected with the actual frontline. SDRs, BDRs, and AEs with some of the data they were showing. And I was like, man, these guys have mastered the art of uh, chumming. Remember chum, you throw chum, and the shark comes up? And because what they did is say, look what we're finding within our system, and they throw some chum out there, what the system was finding. And people said they were consuming that content. And I think they, they were masters at that. And they created this, the ugliest website I've ever seen. Right, yes. first of all, the yeah. ugliest color I've ever seen. I think I told admit that the CEO that I was like it's the ugliest website. But I'm like, I, but you got my attention with your colors. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about culture. You know, in today's market and how that you know playing to your core audience and bring again bringing customers to you is what you want to develop. Yeah, I mean, you call it chumming. I call it. They committed to providing value to their core audience. I mean, did I, did I, was I just more derogatory? <laughs> <laughs> but same, same difference. But I mean, look at look at sales Joe, leaders, Joe, right? Hey, by the way, this is true Minnesota right here, passive aggressive. Like I don't know, I call it chumming, Victor. <laughs> it's it. the same Go. thing. I'm messing uh, with you. <laughs> it's a distinction without a difference. But I think you know, if you think about it, almost every sales leader around has gotten value <laughs> from Gong, whether they're a customer or not. Yes. So I think I think you know that answers the question of. Find out who your core audience is, who your core personas are. Find out what your mission is and make it your job to provide value to those folks. Yeah. Customers and not customers. Yeah. You know, the thing is, in, in, getting back to Gong, let's just use them for example, because I think, you know, being able to create that content, you know, maybe working with some of the folks that you work with, your agencies that you work with, creating the content is big. You know, I've lived off of inbound because of the content I've created online and really trying to focus in on my people. 
you know, what are some of the things that companies can do now to create content to really, I guess, deliver message, drive traffic, really kind of let, you know, the market know this is our culture, this is who we are, a la gong, for example. I think it's a quality over quantity thing. I mean, content becomes a checkbox for some companies. Like, we need to create content. We need to create content. And my old employer, they have some stat, like 90% of the content you create never gets viewed, right? So, so like, you need to think about what are the core fundamentals of the content we're creating? What's the messaging? How are we going to distribute it? And how do we just ensure that we're creating valuable content, content people want to read, not, not infomercial content? Right, and, and I think I think that's the most important thing is really connecting with your ICP and audience with market relevant content that helps the people, not infomercial content. What are, what are some of the you just mentioned one, but some, what are some of the I hate to use the phrase, but here it comes. What are some of the best practices? You know, you've worked with companies, you're trying to put these these campaigns together for them, and you know what content seems to work, not work. What are some of the best practices in content development? that companies should really begin developing? I mean, iterations, you know, authenticity, uniqueness. I think all of that is important. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by iterations? I mean, you need to, like, I, the, the problem I have with the current way of advertising is you get raw engagement numbers, right? For If we're advertising to a company, I'm, I'm trying to drive the most, the highest engagement number possible. And what tends to happen is then you optimize for the bottom of the org chart because that's where all the volume is, right? Where if you're, if you're creating a CMO campaign, right? And I think this is just leadership in general. You put a lot of thought into it. You put a lot of time into it. But guess what? If it doesn't perform, scrap it. Try something else, right? Optimize. Continue to update, right? And I think in leadership, that's, that's one of the key things is know when to kill an idea and iterate. I know you put a lot of time into it. You told your team it's going to work. You sold everybody it's going to work. But if it's not working, then update. So I think, you know, if, if you look at outbound teams, SDR teams, they are constantly updating their templates in, in outreach, or at least they should be. Because, you know, and you see it as, as a, you know, as a buyer, you see it in the outreach you get, like, you know, the, the, did you get eaten by a crocodile email? You know, <laughs> the, the multiple choice, like that worked for a little bit, right? If people are still then everybody using that, copies it. Yeah, yeah. Everybody copies it. <laughs> yeah. It does not work anymore because everybody does it now. Right. So it's, That's it's kind great, of like figuring point, out what's point. working right now and constantly updating because, you know, outbound is what worked yesterday probably is going to work tomorrow. That's so a, you it's constantly such a, need to evolve. It, you know, it's such a simple point, but yet a very powerful point, you know, as you describe iteration, because, you know, there's this sunk cost mentality, right? We put all this money into developing this, and you're telling me I got to scrap it? And people are like, no, but you got to learn to let go, almost like the game of curling, right? Just let yeah. it go slowly into the distance. Uh, so you were saying, so we got great content value, you got iteration, and I, I ruined your flow. You were saying something else. Just be willing to be wrong, right? That Like the... the the way of iterating is try to think creatively. Like the reason that eaten by an alligator email started working is someone had the creativity to think of it, but they also had the spine to try it. You know, a lot of people are afraid to make a mistake so they don't try anything, right? Be, be willing yeah. to be wrong, be unique. And a lot of it's not going to work, but you filter through it and find the winners and you double down on those. Yeah. But that becomes, you know, you bring up another issue, kind of a tangential issue is that is, you know, when you got these young, I'll just say young, but I mean these, I'll say new startups, they're more nimble, right? 
they got, a, I'll call it the theory why mindset, which is like, do it your yeah. way, find a way, iterate. But then you have the command and control people, you know, the large corporations who pretty much solidified or ossified, depending on how you want to look at and how they do things and how things are approved. You know, what do you say to somebody who's in the latter, the more, you know, fossilized approach that we need to get approved by da 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 a hundred people. How do we do this? I mean, what do you say to those guys? Yeah, I think it's really defining your success criteria, right? Because a lot of times that whole silo to attribution model is really created to try to understand how we're going to budget for things. Mm-hmm. And that that's what kind of creates the problem. So if you can circle back and look at like, what are we trying to achieve here? And how do we work backwards? Like KPIs are KPIs. KPIs should never be the win. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the, the data point to see if we, if we can get to the win. And if they have accurate success criteria and they're all looking at the same way to win, then you should start to get consistent feedback on how we are going to achieve that. And you can invest in that. Yeah. Two questions. And we begin closing out with this, you know, uh, on the empathy piece, everybody throws around the word empathy, like it's confetti. But I mean, when you're trying to kind of lock in on those, you know, again, those, those high level, let's say a CMO, for example, you know, what are some suggestions you can give people? It's a tough question I'm asking you to become more empathetic, understand what they're going through. And I hate to say day in the life of, but really understand what their economic or cultural drivers are. How do people go about doing that, but yet not sounding like everybody else? Yeah, I think, I think the main way is being transparent, right? Like there's too many vendors that they get Victor, the CMO on the phone and, and Victor says, Hey, who are you guys? And they say, who do you want us to be? Right. And it's like, you know, it's more of, hey, Victor, here's what we're seeing with CMOs like you. Here's how we can support some of them if they have these challenges. Here's the ones we can't support. But I can, you know, point in the right direction of where you should be looking. So really, really being honest of like, listen, we don't prove value to everyone. We solve these specific problems for these specific people in this in, in these various ways. And if you don't have those problems, if you're not the right fit, that's okay. I love it. I, the straight line is always the best, right? Everybody tries to kind of find ways. I love, the, I love what you just said because there's some studies that show when you tell people, here's what we do, we're good at, here's what we're great at, but here's what we don't do, credibility goes up, and I love that. When you're talking about uh, looking at different markets, and again, let's get back to the buying, the large buying committees. Yep. You know, any, any final tips on just really trying to get past, you know, just I, I have this theory, Joe. I'm going to throw it out, okay? You're going to help me with my theory. You're going to either going to shoot it down or maybe give it some, give it lift. Uh, and that is, let's say, depending on whose marketing study you believe, let's say there's on average 10, you know, buyers in a buying committee, right? I truly believe that in the, in the three-prong, you know, the, the Venn diagram, what, there's always three top influencers within any buying group. And if you can focus in on those three, that becomes a high-leverage activity to try to get everybody else on board. Because the other alternative is to try to serve everybody and then wind up serving nobody. And even if they buy the solution, they're not happy. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. And, and you really have to think of how is it that we support them? Because a lot of times, you know, you, you're creating user value. And sometimes that user value is we can make your job easier, Victor. Mm-hmm. Typically, that's a bad business case for budget. Right. But it is a good way to get Victor to be a sponsor and help introduce you to the people that can build more of an ROI business case, right? So it's like, I can help you, Victor, but we need to do more work to work together. So, so let's you know, move up. So I think it's, it's aligning the right value and messaging to the right persona. 
to get them, you know, invested in championing your championing your solution. Is is the last question? I promise. I could. I, I love talking to you, Joe. The, is the ROI dead? You know, the ROI analysis dead. No, but I think you need to characterize it appropriately, right? Our company, what we do is we show your ads to your audience and then your sales, sales team actions on it. I can't promise ROI with that. If you have bad ads, you have a bad list and you have a bad sales team, like you're not going to get any ROI. What I can do is give you benchmarks of what our successful companies using our solution see to give you some sort of success criteria that you should be running towards. And if you can achieve those benchmarks, what type of ROI will you get? So I think every company needs to create the right context around their ROI and know when the right time is to produce it. I think prospecting with ROI data, companies just think it's hocus pocus math and they call BS on it, right? So I think, you know, instead of presenting a one size fits all, you're going to see XYZ this, XYZ that, being honest and being like, if you don't execute correctly, then you won't get any ROI, but here's how we're going to support you. Because, you know, one of the things that has changed is it's not just a, here's your problem, here's your solution. Everybody's bought software that they couldn't adopt, they couldn't implement, and it was a sunk cost. So you also need to prove, how are we going to help you get from point A to point B? And what can you expect along that, that journey? That sounded so good, man. That sounded so good. I would make you my CRO, man. That just sounded perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, seriously, that, that, that's a great answer because you, you set expectations right. All right, Joe, let's close this out. Any final thoughts on your side? No, I think, I think the main thought is support your BDRs, support your SDRs, get away from siloed commercial teams and be a revenue team. And everybody think buyer first, and this all gets a little easier. Still hard, but at least you're all rolling in the same direction. I love it. All right. On that note, thank you, Joe, for your time. Uh, thank you for watching and listening. This is Victor Antonio with the Sales Influence Podcast, always reminding you that when you know how to target your audience with Influ2.com, maybe you'll just get that much better. Take care. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 